Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 7. And would you stand as I read the Word of God? And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You will walk if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbly hopeful that you would now attend your word read with the power of your spirit to plant your word in our hearts and our minds that it might bear fruit for your glory. But we confess that this is not a fleshly endeavor. It is not something that we are able to do on our own, but we need you. We need you to give us sight, to give us ears, to soften our hearts. So God, would you help us attend to your word now? For your word works effectually in those who believe. And so, Father, now I pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So now, Lord, would you speak to us by word and spirit? Speak. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Hold on. I have a fire pit in my backyard. And, and that's the best language I get for it. It's really kind of pathetic. It's like, uh, it's probably like two feet. It's our circle, metal circle on our patio. And it's about two feet wide, I guess, diameter. Is that diameter? Not circumference, diameter. Tenth grade was a long time ago for my geography. Forgive me. Uh, so it's about two feet wide. And there's still, if you go into my backyard right now, there's, there, there are logs in there that we started to burn. But we didn't finish, right? We, we, you know, whatever reason, we couldn't hang around for that long. And so we quit. And actually, you know, thankfully it's kind of cold, so the mosquitoes haven't procreated in there yet. But uh, there's like about an inch of water that's just sitting in the bottom of this metal canister. I know that's great for its life expectancy. And soon the bottom will just rust out. And, uh, and that's my plan, so I can get something really cool rather than um, this metal 
bucket that I have. Uh, but there's these two logs in there. And, and the logs, we had uh, these trees fall. Uh, there was a windstorm. It was like a year ago, maybe. I don't know, two years. I forgot. COVID has jacked up my timeline. And one of the logs like fell, these dead trees fell into my street in my neighborhood. And so I was the guy that was like blocking everybody from getting to work. And I'm also the guy who does not have a chainsaw. And so I'm like dragging, trying to drag a, I don't know, a 30 foot log out of the street, um, which I was able to do successfully. And then my neighbor kind of great graciously came. So this was not a tree that had a lot of life in it. It had been dead for a while. Uh, It wasn't super big. It was just one of those skinny pine trees. And I figured, I know, you know, you're not supposed to burn pine, all that jazz. Like it's outside. It's fine. You know, whatever. Uh, And so I I began, I was like, I'm not going to waste all this wood. We can just make marshmallows, s'mores and stuff with it. And and so we've been using it, living off of it, uh, basically, with our, for our s'more production. Um, and so how, and I just want to ask you this, maybe, how reasonable would it be for me to have this, you know, it's been sawn into, or, or you know, it's sawn up, caught up, and uh, it's been split in quarters and burned a little bit. How reasonable would it be? For me to go home this afternoon, to go into my fire pit, to pick up that quarter of a piece of a log that has been burnt on one end and go plant it in the ground, expecting that that log would then grow into a tree. Is that a reasonable proposition? In your experience, does that happen? Is that how, you know, Jeff, is that how we repopulate forests? Jeff Jeff said no. So the forester guy says no. It's no, right? Uh, that, that a dead tree, having been burned a little bit, been set to the fire, will not in and of itself yield new life. If it were to do so, it would be a miracle. By the very definition of a miracle. As we come to Zechariah chapter 3, we're parachuting into a rather complicated book. And so I'm not going to give you the whole like thing, but Zechariah is writing after the, after the exiles have returned from Babylon. He and Haggai, the book before him, who Haggai is the skinny guy that lives between Zechariah and Zephaniah. And so he and Zechariah have the same timeline. They come to do their prophetic ministry in Jerusalem around 520 B.C., after, after all the rigmarole of seeing the exiles who were removed to Babylon, now they are set back into Jerusalem, finally. And so Zechariah and Haggai have this prophetic ministry to see the work of the Lord in the city of the Lord continue. Haggai is primarily concerned with rebuilding the temple, encouraging the people to rebuild the temple, not just focus on themselves, but focus on the kingdom of God Zechariah's concern is that the people would understand the hopeful future that God has for his people and the future of Jerusalem. And so the second half of Zechariah is all sort of the future kingdom and has a lot of messianic overtones, a lot of looking forward to the kingdom of God that Jesus establishes in his rule and reign on earth. And then when he comes back to, to finish it all out. But the beginning of the chapter is about what's going to happen with Jerusalem. Uh, And and there are these eight visions. And chapter three is number four of eight. This is the fourth vision 
of eight visions. And so this is a, a, it's a vision. So this is Joshua who is the high priest. And so what's going to happen with Jerusalem? They have to reestablish rightful worship. A people who has been disjointed from Jerusalem, they've been removed from the temple. They have not been participating in rightful worship because they, their worship for the Jews was centered on the temple. And because they couldn't worship at the temple, they were disconnected from true, vital, full worship. And a key piece of that was the restoration of the priesthood. And so when you see Joshua, don't think Joshua the son of Nun, right? The fourth book of the Bible who, you know, they march around Jerusalem and the city walls fall. Different Joshua a long time later. Okay? They just have the same name. It's just a long time later. And so Joshua, the high priest appears before the angel of the Lord. He appears as he is. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan uh, commentator, right? You, you probably bumped in, if you've done any Bible research, you probably bumped into Matthew Henry's commentary because he wrote it in the 1600s and it's all public domain and free. And so you can go Google and read the whole thing. If you read the whole thing, I will give you a dollar and a piece of candy because it's long. <laughs> Uh, And I'll be really, really impressed. Uh, But he says that as a man is before the Lord, so he truly is, no matter what he appears before other people. As a man is, a man or a woman, uh, is before the Lord, so he is, really, despite what he might look like before other people. So Joshua stands before the Lord, As he is. If there's anyone who is going to know you as you are, it is the God who has made you. He is the one who David says in Psalm 139 that he knit you together in your mother's womb. That before you spoke a word, he knew what was on your lips. He knew your beginning and he knows the day of your death. He knows your inner heart. He knows your deepest sins. He knows your greatest joys. He knows you better than you could ever know yourself and better than anyone else can know you because we are perpetually, maybe not perpetually, but oftentimes we are putting up a veneer. Y'all church people don't know about this, right? You are, how you doing? I'm great. You know, my house just exploded, my car blew up, my cat died, my grandma's in the hospital. I'm great. We put on that shimmer shine thing going on and say everything's good. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows Joshua and he knows you. So, so far we've been introduced to two key characters. The Lord or the angel of the Lord. And then Joshua. Who's the third character that shows up in verse 1? A high priest? Okay, who else? Satan. Satan. You guys all, you got picked up on the microphone. You're on the recording now. So Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord and Satan is standing at his right hand. This is the, the right hand is the position of power. This should be where Joshua is drawing strength to execute the ministry that the Lord has given him. And rather than finding a wellspring of of strength and of truth and of 
life and vitality. What does he find at his right hand but the accuser? And Satan's presence there, as Joshua's lined up before the angel of the Lord, this is a, a courtroom scene. And Joshua is in the dock, if you will, as C.S. Lewis would say. Joshua's in the dock. The Lord is the judge. And Satan is the prosecutor. He is the accusing attorney bringing charges against Joshua, saying, this man could never be priest. He can never do, he can never lead the people in worship. He can never do these things because look at his life. You see it. And to a lesser degree, Satan sees it. And so Satan is there standing at his right hand to accuse him. And in fact, that's where the word, his name comes from. Satan is the accuser. He is the adversary. Revelation chapter 12 says that he is the accuser of the brethren. That Satan's ministry is to consistently bring up to you and to God and to whoever will listen all of your faults and failures and sins. As though God didn't know this. The problem with Satan is that he's a liar. But the greater problem is when Satan tells the truth about you. When he doesn't have to make up a lie to accuse you. And if we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, each and every one of us have seen the perfect standard of the law of God because it's written upon our consciences and each of us have fallen. Then in order to accuse us, Satan does not need to tell a lie. You know your faulting, you know your faults, you know your sins. You know the places and the things that you have said and done in the secret and the dark where you don't think anybody saw. You know the places where you harbor resentment and bitterness and anger. You know where you are coveting other people's things and other people's glory and other people's success, wishing I should be there. You know the places where you have been unfaithful in your relationships, where you haven't cherished the life that you have given, that you have been given. You, you know that as you look at the Ten Commandments, you can check off each box if you spend enough time on each one of them. That, yep, I failed there. Yep, I failed there. Yep, I failed there. And believe it or not, if you're thinking, Jacob, I'm here for good news. I'm, I'm here to be encouraged. The best encouragement I have for you is the truth. That there is no way for you by yourself to stand before the righteous judgment of God. There is no way for you to stand before the righteous judgment of God and God declare you righteous. Your conscience right now tells the truth in what I'm saying. If your conscience is not telling you the truth, then you need to run to Jesus because your conscience is hardened and calloused. You've been lying to yourself for so long. We need this bad news before we get to the good news. Before we soar like 
eagles on eagles' wings and whatever that Isaiah 40, right? You jump like you, you know, you're like, uh, you're jumping over stuff and you're flying over stuff and everybody wants to put that on a coffee mug. You know, I don't see any coffee mugs that say all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, but your pride needs that reminder every day too. That you are not accounted righteous. You're not declared right with God by who you are. Think of all the ways that you might applaud yourself to God. And the easiest is comparison. God, I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that woman. I'm not like those people who do those things. Look at me. I don't drink or smoke or chew or go with with girls who do. I go to church and give my money. I'm a good neighbor. I bring, you know, I... I clothe people, I feed people. Look at me. I'm not that guy. Pour out your judgment upon them. And the reality is, yeah, they might be a train wreck. But the standard that you are held accountable by and to is not the standard of other sinful people. The standard that you are held accountable to is God and his revealed law. He is the standard. The pure, excellent, righteous law of God. And he says, this is righteousness. This is what it means to be holy and moral and good and right with me. And we ain't done it, y'all. So Joshua is there in this courtroom and Satan is heaping the accusations upon him. And there's no lies told here. As we'll see late, we saw later in the passage, right? The filthy garments represent the, the moral impurity, the failure of Joshua to keep the moral standards of God, the righteous standards of God. He's there in filthy garments before the Lord. But notice the Lord's response to the accusations of Satan. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, so... The angel of the Lord and the Lord are using sort of interchangeably here. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So the Lord says, he he says to the accuser, he he doesn't say, you're, you're wrong. Joshua's a swell guy. I'm going to welcome him in. He doesn't say about you. Well, you know, I, I know that you, you screwed up all these times. I know that you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I know that you haven't lived up to the standard. But I think you're great. And I'm just, I'm just going to forget all of that stuff. And I'm going to sweep you, bring you all on in. Right, I'm going to take your sins, I'm going to pick up the throw rug of heaven, and I'm going to get the, the, the broom, and I'm just going to sweep it under, and I'm going to cover that up. But too often, this is how we interact with God. We think God throw, you know, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Praise God, that's in the Bible, that's true. But God's forgiveness, God's forbearance, God's looking over your sin is not the righteous judge of all things saying, "Eh, it's not a big deal. 
Just imagine you're in the courtroom. Imagine, but you're not on the dock. You're not on, you're not the one on trial today. On trial is the one who came and murdered your family while you were asleep. It's on videotape. It's on Facebook Live. Security cameras. Eyewitnesses. Without a shadow of doubt, this dude did that awful thing. And he comes up to the judge. And the judge says, I see all of this, see all of this evidence, I see all of this atrocity, but you know what? I'm really loving today. Go free. Now, how would you classify that judge? Or the, is that a righteous judge? Is that a righteous, would you, what would you do? Can you imagine the miscarriage of justice and letting the murderer go? There's no way that that judge can be called a righteous judge. There's no way that that judge could be said he's upholding the law. There's no justice there. And in fact, that judge has abdicated his bench or whatever they sit on. And it would be the same for God. For God to say, well, I see all of your sin... I know it better than you know it, but I gave you a royal, righteous, holy standard that reveals my character of who I am and what it means to be with me. But for God to do that in response to your sin would would be for God to abdicate his own holiness and God cannot do or be Anything but God. The response of the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty upon sin is righteous judgment and wrath. It it can't be any other way. And yet, God does something different, right? He could have just, with the flood... Wipe this out. And what does he do? Y'all, this is the beauty of God. That because of his great love, because he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, what does he do? Well, here he says, The Lord rebuke you. I've chosen Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Joshua are interchangeable. We'll not get into that right now. But, but I've chosen this man. I've chosen this city. I've chosen them. That God freely, graciously chooses them despite their sin. Not because they're somehow morally superior. But He chooses them freely and sovereignly. He says, these are my people. This man, I'm choosing him. And notice the effects of what God does. 
The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. I rebuke you. So it's by the free grace of God that Satan is silenced. It is not by your moral superiority that you have an argument against Satan. It is by the free grace of God. Free grace of God rebukes Satan. And the free grace of God plucks this brand out of the fire. A brand is just a flaming, smoldering stick. So Joshua is one who was in the fire of wrath, judgment before God. And by God's free grace, Joshua is pulled out. This is the beginning of conversion. Joshua is pulled out of the fire. And if I may, just quick interlude. This is where you are today. You are either the brand, you are either the stick in the fire, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is a present tense reality in this world. Either you are under the wrath of God, heaping up wrath for the last day, or you are the flaming stick Plucked from the fire, set for God's purposes. It's either or. Either you are dead in your sins and trespasses, you are like that fallen, rotten tree spiritually. You're placed into the furnace, you've begun to burn. And God, in His mercy, says, This one's mine. Come alive. Robert Murray McShane, if you remember last year, we wasn't it last year we did the, the McShane reading plan, the Bible reading plan? He's a Scottish uh, pastor. You should go read Robert Murray McShane. But he, he has a sermon on this text. And he said, it is only God who is able to take the smoldering stick, graft it into the tree of Christ, and see it green and bearing fruit and come alive. Dear ones, this is the miracle of new birth. This is the miracle of regeneration. This is the miracle of conversion. The beginning of conversion is where God takes us from sin, death, misery, righteous judgment before God and brings us out of the fire and seats us before himself in grace. It's all of, you understand what I mean by grace? It is unmerited Favor and action of God on your behalf. You cannot boast about what the Lord has done. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those standing by him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away. So he's brought out of the fire, brought out of the flames, set before God. And it is before God that his sins begin to be peeled away. His moral impurity is removed before God. And some of you need to hear this. It is not the stick in the fire that can scrub off the charcoal. What do I mean by that? You Do not have the capability, nor does God command you to clean yourself up before you come to Christ. 
And maybe you're feeling that. Maybe you're feeling, I'm, I'm spiritually dead. I don't have life in me, love towards God. I don't love neighbor. I don't have any desire to worship. I see my sin. I see my need for Jesus. I feel the condemnation that I'm going to have to give an account to God. Great. Run to Jesus. You could still smell like the furnace. You could smell like wherever you've come from. Get to Christ. And it is He who can remove your iniquity. It's He who will make you clean. I have taken away your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. Or, or with festive clothing. With, with white clothing. This is imagery. That I'm taking away your sin. And I'm giving you my righteousness. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 13. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you are declared righteous for Christ's sake, not for your own sake. And as you're declared righteous, you're given a righteousness that is not your own. You have a right standing with God that is not your own. Jesus takes your sin your guilt, your misery upon himself at the cross of Golgotha. And this is the gracious, great exchange of the gospel. Heaven is not, well, that's not the way to say it. The church is not filled with good people. The church is filled with saved people. Who are made righteous, who are now growing up. And to who we are in Jesus. So if the, if the morally impure, if the sinner cannot stand before the Holy One of God, what has God done? How does God make atonement? How does God, in that passage from Romans chapter 3, how does God remain just while declaring righteous the sinner? It's through the cross. It is in the cross of Christ that the righteous wrath of God due for sin is poured out. So that in order for your sin to be removed as far as the east is from the west, it is not swept up under the rug of heaven. It is nailed to the cross of Golgotha in the person of Jesus. That's how God deals with your sin. That's the cost of our forgiveness. That's the cost of our relationship with God. This is how much he would say, come be mine. With all your battered and all your bruising and all your wickedness, all your vileness, leave it behind and come. Look to Jesus. He remains just. He cannot be anything other than just. He remains righteous and holy because he can't be anything but righteous and holy. We don't want him to be anything but righteous and holy. Yet, He's loving and gracious and it's there. The love and the just wrath of God meet. And the Savior on the tree. So that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But notice, when calling upon the name of the Lord, to be saved, conversion, You're experiencing this grace of God where He pulls you out. He places you before Himself. He begins to cleanse you. 
for the converted person, for the person who claims faith in Christ, to want to perpetually go back to where they were, to go back to sin, to go back to rebellion, to go back to the old ways of life. That is the equivalent of this burned up log that somehow planted and grows into a tree desiring to go back to the fire. It is antithetical to its new nature. What am I saying? I'm saying if your heart only longs to go back to Egypt, if you only long to go back to the slavery of sin and death, then you need to question if you've experienced the grace of God in Christ. Conversion required the the two components of conversion of coming to Christ, experiencing the grace of God. Now we come to Jesus, we repent of our sin, and we place our faith in Jesus. There is a negative component and a positive component. There is a turning away from sin, and there's a looking towards Jesus. Again, I'm not saying perfection. But it doesn't make any sense for a child of God to long and want desire consistently to live like a child of the devil. Your holiness is rooted in the gospel. So, what do we do? Well, one, if you feel the weight of condemnation today and you become aware there is a conviction of sin growing within you, Praise God. That is the Holy Spirit beginning something in your heart. Do not try to pat that down. Lean into it and let and run to Jesus. He is your only hope to deal with your sin, your shame, your guilt, your fear, and your position before God. Come to faith in Jesus. Come with whatever you have, whatever baggage, whatever habits, whatever addictions. None of those things disqualify you from coming to Christ. Come to Christ and let him start cleaning you up. Christian, some of you maybe need to examine your, we all have to examine our lives. But is there a pattern in your life of growing, longing more and more for Jesus Or is there a pattern for longing more and more for the things of the world to go back to where you were? A good way, a good judge of this. How do you think about your former self? When you think about what you used to do in the flesh before you were saved, does it bring a smile to your face and say, oh, those were the good old days? Or does it bring a heap of guilt and an adoration of the Savior that Jesus saved you from that. Examine your heart and examine your lives. Some of you, I fear very few, I hope very few, I fear some, have misunderstood what conversion is. You thought it was praying a prayer, walking an aisle, getting dunked in the baptistry, getting your name on the membership roll, and you're good to go. 
And you can, you can do whatever you want to do at that point. And that is nothing. That is not, that is not the truth. Conversion is a spiritually initiated change. Initiated by God that you must respond to. God must give you a new heart. Must change your way. Enlighten your eyes. Take away your heart of stone. Give you a heart of flesh. Give you a new will and a new desire. And in that you say, yes, Lord, you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Jesus. It is a wholesale, radical, root to tree branch change. And if you're confused, like you're not so sure, am I converted today? Is my name written in the book of life? You don't, I'm not asking you to walk up right now, I know. But talk to me. Lay it out before the Lord. For there's grace there. No one who comes to the Lord Jesus in faith will he cast out. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for the mercy of your free grace. The wonder that you would justify the ungodly like us. And it is only by the provision of Christ, our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice, our wrath-averting sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of the blood of Christ, there is no reconciliation with our God. But in Him, we who place our faith in Him are counted righteous. Holy Spirit, would you do a work in here, right now, in these hearts? Would you make it abundantly clear as people begin to examine what is my spiritual state? Am I in Christ or outside of Christ? Am I in the fire, rotten and dead? Or have I been made alive, bearing fruit for Jesus? Would you give us clarity? I ask, O Lord, that you would bind up the work of the adversary now, that he would not pluck, not be able to pluck the seed of the gospel off of these hearts today. That, Lord, your seed, this news, this message would find good soil and bear fruit for your glory. Would you give us grace to respond, each of us, as you would have us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.